I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Tom Peeler. And we love to watch. We love to watch Snake Plissken Razzle Dazzle. California. Take it. Yeah, after all that, thank you for your for your directing efforts, team. Uh, I, I really should ask Tom to direct me on this one. Uh, yeah, he's the director. We're too here. close. We're too close. That's oh, true. You can't have a, you can't have a friend direct. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Tom's not a friend, uh, and he's joined. <laughs> Just kidding. He's great. <laughs> I'm here against my will. <laughs> I kind of thought it would be funny, and we're not going to do this. Or I should say, I'm not going to do this because I did not run it by Peter. Is So Tom, we asked him, he joined us for our Rescuers Down Under episode. Uh, we asked him to come back. And of all the guests we've ever asked or asked to come back, we were met with relentless enthusiasm at the prospect of rejoining us, uh, bordering on uh, annoyance. <laughs> um, and so I thought it might be fun if we're just just a dick to you the whole time uh, but that doesn't really feel like in keeping with that's not that we love show. to watch brand i would say I mean, it's not i guess i deserve it but mm, no yeah tom it seemed fake almost nobody likes us why would you do that using you guys is just so satisfying like i get like a thrill out of it i don't know you guys are just <sighs> enabling my addiction <laughs> your addiction to a podcast guest appearance <laughs> just give me like a 15 minute improv set oh, That's all oh I, I just gotta do my i gotta do my plugs just let me plug something you want oh. you, you want your master none you want you want to recap that episode <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so we are joined again by Tom Peeler. Uh, we are very excited to have him on. What's uh, up, Tom? Park? <laughs> We're done, Peter. It's enough. Sorry. Sorry. Did you play NBA Jam? Uh, yeah, yeah, I played NBA Jam on the Sega I'm not Genesis. Sure. Oh, could could you spell that? It's a lot of wise. Is all I know. <laughs> Tom, quick sidebar. Yeah, uh, you played it on the Super Nintendo, right? Like a normal person. My first console was a Nintendo sixty four. Tom, hey Tom. I'm going to need you to talk in sidebar voice. Oh, oh. Which, hey, which hey, is quieter hey, than normal I'm, voice. I'm over here now. Hey, hey, what's going on? Hey, hey guys, Tom, are you still on the mic? I can't hear anything. See, see, Tom, that's why you got to talk yeah. like that. Because oh, okay. Peter yeah. can't hear. His sound levels that he can hear are just this this very narrow range. Right, right. Yeah, he, guys, I can only hear sound in a very narrow range, guys. Right, he's still shell-shocked. Yeah, yeah. So so you never played it, Tom, is what you're saying. No, no, I'm, I was a loser. I'm sorry. I don't know if that's what I would call it, but... Uh, I was a loser, all right? I, th- I thought we thought we established that, but yeah, I was a loser. Tom, this isn't a counseling session. Okay, okay. I just wanted to know if you'd played NBA Jam on Super Nintendo. I played it on an arcade cabinet. Does that still count? Oh, Jesus hey, Christ. Hey, hey, Aaron? Hey, Aaron? Hey, hey, Peter? Hey, Peter, sidebar? Yeah, try, hey, Aaron, trying to to sidebar real quick? Tom's yeah. kind of a loser. Where did you guys go? <laughs> <laughs> Man, Tom, I'll tell you what, this, this sidebar technology we got is amazing. Guys... <laughs> Pope should use this when he's doing Pope stuff. I'm all alone. Hey, Tom, how you doing? Oh, hey, Peter, hey, you're Tom. back. Oh, 
Hey, okay. no, everything's fine. The signal's fine. Uh, we're clear. We're just uh, having a little sidebar, just doing some. We love to watch network uh, chatter. I hope you don't mind if we. Just oh, take no, some I understand. Time. I, thought, yeah, I, th- I thought you were gonna say we're doing some networking. <laughs> yeah, we're just doing some networking. <laughs> we're just we're just trying to expand the base of our our listenership by trying to get the other host to listen. I keep trying to type in his name on LinkedIn, and I keep doing like three A's and Aaron, and it's just not working. Aaron. Yeah. Air. You could be like most of my clients and spell it A-R-R-O-N, even though I have a signature with my fucking name every time I send them a reply email. <laughs> <laughs> hey, newsflash clients, no one spells their name like that. <laughs> There's no A-R-R-O-N. Around. All right, uh, folks, we are here to talk about uh, the, You don't have uh, not any more listeners film. after that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're uh, planning on, uh, you know, cutting some chaff listeners. Uh, only the uh, desperate and the people unable to uh, turn off their, their iPhones are uh, going to be listening to this one. But uh, oh, this, of course, we're... people without fingers. People without, yeah, the fingerless but had fingers right. when the podcast guys, started. The, the, the chaff explaining is the worst chaff of all. <laughs> we're, we're just third week of carving about Carpenter, the one that you voted for that we're excited to do. We're doing 1996's Escape from L.A., the belated sequel to 1981's Escape from New York. Uh, and we are joined by Tom Peeler. Uh, and he's going to quickly tell us three things about himself. And then we have two topics we're going to talk about that are quasi-related to the movie. We're not going to do a game, but we have a lot to talk about with this movie. And we have some side things that we wanted to organize in a nice, respectful manner. So we're not just blurting them out mid-episode or something. I don't know. Tom, tell us, say three things about yourself. I'm Tom Peel and I'm a filmmaker. All right. That's three. Uh, <laughs> Do you want three more to talk about your uh, film production company? <laughs> no, yeah. Uh- you can cut all this out. I'm really sorry for no, that. No, no, really yeah, I, I, defi- I definitely do. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Like, I'm having definitely. I need to talk. Yeah, no, no. Tell us about your film production company, quick. No, no. I'll, I'll save that for the end. Let me just, I'll just redo this so it's not as annoying. Sorry. Um, no, this is great, Tom. 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 Tom, Tom calm great. down, my sweet Tom. baby boy. Tim. Time. Time. <laughs> Breathe, Tom. Breathe. You're doing fine. Okay. My name's Tom Peeler. Gustava. My name's Tom Peeler. I am a filmmaker. I'm a wrestling fanboy. And for a time, I was within the top 100 fastest completion times for Banjo-Kazooie on Xbox Live. And for a time, I mean like a week. <laughs> oh, that's somebody was cool. like, I can I'd... beat him. I, I was ranked the same with sex with my wife. <laughs> oh, I'm sad now. <laughs> Not sure if we should cut that out, but it's there. Aaron, I have some questions. So... In this instance, you were shooting for a shorter completion time? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, she keeps the board up in our room with a ranking. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, that's even worse in a way. Yeah, it's really bad. I mean, honestly, like, it's a top 100, so the amount of wall space that gets used up for this yeah. is nightmarish. Yeah. Like, How much take down pictures. Your family buy? So much chalk. We had to we had to take down pictures of like our daughter and our family members. It's like I'm sorry. I just remembered the bottom twenty. <laughs> Mailman Stan puts up a brick. <laughs> oh, it's especially tough because it's it's a hundred different things in chalk. So like if I get fifty seventh, that's a lot of erasing to move everyone down the ladder one. Uh, but it's worth the effort uh, because of the definitiveness of it. Right. Right. What keeps our relationship strong is 
the ranking of the quickness <laughs> of our sexual uh, engagements. Walkabouts. Um, and you, as a respecter of lists, uh, are fine with that. Yeah, well, Peter's time is zero seconds uh, and zero minutes for all of his encounters because he's a virgin. Guys, uh, if there's anybody out there who wants to take my virginity, too bad. You can't have it. Listen, you're the Pope. You have you have a duty to be chaste. You can't yeah. lose that now. Like, you should have before you became Pope, but now you're cursed to, you know, remain a virgin forever. Oh, I forgot to mention to our listeners, uh, I'm the Pope now, so you have to treat me like the Pope. If anybody has any questions on that, you can stuff it. He's the young-ish Pope. I'm the, the young-ask Pope. I have a young body uh, apart from my liver, which is the same age as every other Pope's liver. Dead to old. <laughs> uh. All right. It's always good to know when you've passed funny. <laughs> get it out of Gone get to, funny out of our system. To, can't wait to get Gone there. To, yeah. Oh, shake that funnies out. All right. So so we, we talked about this in the last few episodes and uh, I revisited Escape from L.A. and Escape from New York. Tom, you watched both for the first time. Peter also revisited uh, both. Uh, Peter, worth noting, Escape from New York used to be your favorite movie for years of all time. Years and years. Which my is, IMDb my IMDb comment tag was you are the Duke of New York, you're a number one, and it was a little emoji with machine guns shooting at an emoji looking scared. <laughs> How do I shut down this podcast and delete every episode? <laughs> Don't worry, IMDb already deleted everything <laughs> well, that anybody's ever said on the IMDb thank forum, God. so it's like you were never there. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Even for someone who likes Escape from New York quite a bit, I do kind of feel like that is a very strange movie for like a junior high school kid to consider their favorite movie in some ways just because, you know, it has a lot of kind of like downtime in the way that kind of low budget 80s action movies uh, had. So I don't know if it's just in relation to what else you saw, but you said you were a huge fan for a long time. It was your number one movie. So I find that fascinating. We're going to get more into that on our definitely at some point coming Escape from New York episode. But I've said that I think that Escape from L.A. is the better movie and the one that I enjoy more. And the rankings were pretty close. I revisited both. And my verdict on the Escape from L.A., Escape from New York comparison is... I still think that Escape from L.A. is the better movie. Well, uh, you're alone. I do. I I, so, well, I'm not alone. So we'll get into who, it. We'll get into it. Who else agrees with me is uh, Roger Debert. No, um, come on. Yep, he the gave, du- but he gave the three. Th- he gave the thing a negative review. Uh, who else agrees with me is John Carpenter, director of Escape from L.A. and Escape from New York. He can't be trusted on who? his stuff too close. <laughs> <laughs> so he gave. So let me let me give you a quote that he gave ten years after this movie. He said, uh, Escape from L.A. is better than the first movie, ten times better. It's got more to it. It's more mature. It's got a lot more to it. I mean, this is what he said. I can't help that he quoted himself twice. I think some people didn't like it because they felt like it was a remake, not a sequel. I suppose it's the old question of whether you like Rio Bravo or El Dorado better. They're essentially the same movie. They both have their strengths and weaknesses. I don't know. You never know why a movie's going to make it or not. People didn't want to see Escape that time, but they didn't really want to see the thing, and you just wait. You've got to give me a little while. People will say you know – people will say you know what was wrong. Okay, reading John Carpenter the way he talks is uh, difficult. Um, yeah, you need people to smoke say, like you know, packs a day. Yeah. <laughs> people will say, you know, what was wrong with me? So that and that's not like promotional material for Escape from L.A. That's that's 2007, it's ten years after he made the movie. So I, I think they both agree with me. 
Um, and I do like, and actually, I gotta tell you this: if we were doing those John Carpenter rankings from the first, the first of the, these episodes we did, I would, I would put Prince of Darkness, uh, which was my tenth. I would put them over both Escape from LA and Escape from New York. That really, uh, you guys heard us talk about it last week. That really just blew me away. Um, but I would, I would probably put Escape from New York a little lower. I would, I would definitely put it. Um, I think I, I like Assault from Precinct uh, 13, which I believe was my ninth. I think I think I would put Escape from New York uh, number 10. And it's not because I don't really like the movie or think it's a really good movie. I do, but I really like L.A. better. And without going into details too much as to why, we're going to talk about the movie quite a bit. I'm probably going to be a little more fawning than you two. But I'm going to say the three big things that makes me like L.A. better from a general concept because we don't get, get into too far into New York. And then... The last thing I want to do before we get into the movie proper is uh, throw out a hypothesis as to why Peter likes New York better based on us doing like 60 episodes of this podcast together and talking on almost a daily basis. <laughs> but because I have a theory. You do have a theory? And I want to see how I have a theory as to why I prefer L.A. and you prefer New York. My reason is uh, something that we have talked about in passing. Uh, and I'm not talked about in the show. So I'm gonna, I'm really going to throw out a theory that's kind of unrelated to even this genre of movies and see if, if that's why you think we have this differing opinion. Now, obviously, of course, I will admit that I am I am in the minority uh, on my Escape from L.A., Escape from New York. But I thought that when I saw both the movies uh, 15, 16 years ago and I've revisited both many times separately. I've never watched them so close together as I did this time again and uh, felt the exact same way. So so I like – so here's things I like about, uh, about Escape from L.A. very broad thematically. I like that he's a loner in Escape from L.A. Uh, New York – Snake Plissken such a copied archetype at this point and taken from the old you know, Clint Eastwood westerns. He really kind of has a team in New York and I like that he doesn't at any point – in LA, even though they keep trying to add team members to him and things keep happening that we're going to discuss later. Um, I like that we get a bigger view in LA of what the world that would create a prison island looks like. We get hints of it in New York. Um, I really like how actively we're involved at like the big picture of, of the way that the world has turned in LA, because I think that that concept is very important to the movie as a whole. I really like the uh, lore that we're getting behind. Hey, what kind of American society would make a prison island with these fascist things? Well, we get a really good look into what kind of fascism and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, the third thing is I like that they, you know, I don't think that they undercut the, the action or the thematic stuff, but inherently it was kind of a, uh, in some ways, a goofy concept. And, they still made the action as exciting, uh, but they kind of leaned into that a little bit without being outright parody or anything like that. But they they went more over the top, and that is something that I always appreciate about a movie. So those are my three why I think uh, very broad, why I like L.A. better than New York. We're going to talk about L.A. quite a bit. What are your guys' thoughts on that before I give my theory? the uh, This is actually something you didn't say now but you mentioned a lot of downtime in the first movie and that's something that's interesting because 
to me, the first movie feels exactly like Assault on Precinct 13 in terms of tone, which is that it doesn't have downtime. It's just always gliding along this really, like, beautiful synth wave. Uh, and I mean that in, like, a not just the fact that it's a musical movement, but, like, the fact that he has this sort of, like, constantly thrumming score. And the plot is always moving forward, but it's not in a hurry in a way that reminds me of Westerns. Uh, Escape from New York feels like, I believe, a Western in that sort of, like, deliberate pacing and this sort of, like, you're just riding a tone for a lot for a lot of periods between scenes it's not just like smash 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 go to the next scene go to the next scene which uh, Michael Bay has kind of influenced on our culture and Escape from LA has that faster tone it feels more influenced by the movies of its era whereas like I think Escape from New York feels like it's got this like really like deliberate pacing and I really love that about it because I'm always entertained and I'm always like enticed by the plot um, but yeah, Escape from L.A. feels very, like, affected. It's trying to keep up. Um, do you agree with that? Like, it's trying, like, it's like, let's bring Snake Plissken back, but let's have him keep up with the bad boys. And let's, I didn't mean that, like, bad boys lowercase. I meant, like, bad boys uppercase, <laughs> like the actual Michael Bay movie. Um, <laughs> See, I don't, I don't I don't think that bad boys, I mean, 1990, I think bad boys came out in 94 or 95. I think I want, I think 95. I don't think that kind of. Michael Bay, I think The Rock, I want to say, was 96, So, I, and, and Escape from L.A. was 96, so I don't think that level of frantic action movie even really existed, or if it was, it was like a new movement, and I don't think Carpenter was trying to ape that. Carpenter's never kind of been that guy. I think the difference is, is that he got to show his crazy world more, and L.A. lends itself more to bombast in a way that New York, especially the New York that he was, uh, you know, extrapolating on from the 80s, uh, doesn't. You know, it was it was that kind of like, it's dark, it's grimy, everyone's miserable, and so that's obviously a different feel and a different movie than, than riffing off L.A. in the 90s. So I, I feel like that's the difference more. I mean, L.A. had a $50 million budget, which is insane. That's like a hundred million dollars. It doesn't look like a fifty million dollar movie. I don't. No, no, it does not. I don't think I made it clear with my first comment. I don't like it. I, I don't think I made it clear with my first comment (laughs) or your second or my second. But uh, I like LA a lot, but not aged well in terms of how I think it spent the fifty million dollars. I yeah, some of that is like you know again we're we're three years removed from Jurassic Park and they were like throw some CG in there, which is always a bad idea in nineteen ninety six, <laughs> but it probably cost them a shitload of money. It cost them a shitload of money, and I think that you know if we're going to compare to the first movie, the first movie has really great practical effects. It does. Um, and I think I think, that, I think L.A. has some good practical effects, too. L.A. does, but it has a few sequences, and we'll get into it in the second act, yeah. that really, really distract from, I think, what it's trying to do. And I think that, like, there are moments in the movie that I really enjoy that have this sort of, like, snake as this post-apocalyptic wanderer. And I kind of like that he's, like, running into all these weird characters. And, like, after he blows away David Carradine in L.A., he doesn't, like run into him again like i like him in that mode like kind of just like going from place to place and being a loner um in la but but in the second act there's some stuff that happens and we'll get into it but there's some stuff that happens that i think like they felt the need to throw cg in there and it's just not working so tom 
before I kind of throw out my theory, because we, well, I don't want to, I don't want to have this detract too much from the episode proper, because we haven't said explicitly yet that we're we're not going to be talking about New York in any sort of specifics. Mm-hmm. We definitely are going to cover it on a future episode. I think I think right now we're kind of batting around the idea. I might as well just say it now because we've been having so much fun talking about Carpenter. Of this was like the lesser quote unquote works of. John Carpenter. I say we just do a month of the major works of John Carpenter and then try to pick four other ones we really want to talk about. Assault, it should not be fog, hard. It's an embarrassment state. of riches, yeah. honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't want to track for that, but I do want to hear, Tom, as you watched both for the first time, what was your kind of – obviously, you said you like New York better. Yes. In the, and, I, and we can save whether you liked L.A. at all because I don't know that answer for, for once we actually get into the episode – but let us know, why did you think New York worked better uh, in a very general sense? I felt that New York was this very tight, efficient uh, action thriller that gives you your setup your, and your important beats right off the bat, drops you into the action and carries you through to the end. And there's not, in my opinion, a wasted moment. I just really admired that about the movie. It's just its efficiency. But basically with L.A., it's like you see the carpenter even acknowledge this in that quote that he delivered in 2007 is that it's the obvious thing to say, but it is the same movie. It's the same formula. And I don't blame them for using it. It's a winning formula. It worked. So I get why <laughs> maybe they wanted to return to the well. And I like it. I do enjoy L.A. I just do think it's a lesser movie. But what I think it suffers from is just that like New York brings you into this new fresh world and it's very interesting. And while it builds this great characters and this great lore, what it leaves up to implication and interpretation is interesting enough in its own right that it doesn't affect the movie. But I think the problem with LA is that so much time has passed within the narrative of the universe that when we get snake on this new adventure, he's this changed man in a way that, I was a little annoyed that I hadn't seen the change. Like everything is like, oh, all these adventures you had between New York and now, like, and they keep talking about Cleveland, which I know has its roots in an in-joke from with, with Carpenter, but they keep saying like, oh, remember when you did this and this? And I'm like, what? Like, it's like jumping right from X-Men 1 and then making the next sequel Logan. It's like, why am I getting the final adventure of this man as the next sequel and not like another run of it? So I don't know, there was just this, vibe about it where the choices they made in advancing the narrative kind of hung over the movie in a way that I didn't fully enjoy but like craft wise and everything I I can't I as you guys have said it's bombastic and it's enthusiastic about that and that's why I like it it's never boring and it's it takes joy in how silly it gets sometimes and I I think that's a lot of fun maybe it's just because when I watched this like movies didn't have narrative to the level that they do now but it was so normal for like a movie to just do the same thing again and I think this is a movie that like I've said I think it does the same thing but does it uh, a little bit better not Totally better. Uh, having just watched him again, I also think it's a pretty straight line from the Escape from New York to Escape from L.A. Snake. So I kind of want to get into that a little more okay. later. But I think that's I think that's definitely uh, I think that's definitely. An- I think Snake is a very different man, and the fact that he does what he does at the end of this film shocked me because it seems like such a huge step ethically from what he did like at the end of the first movie. Maybe it, it demands more elaboration, but... We're going to dive in really quick. I just want to say my theory, Peter. Hit me, baby. So we had a conversation once about... And I was kind of shocked. And I am forgetting what movies were specifically referenced. But you basically said there were 
a lot of like 80s horror comedies that you didn't like when you watched them in junior high and high school. And that is like I don't I don't remember if it was Reanimator or Evil Dead 2 or we I know we talked about a few specific examples, but because in general we have such similar movie taste, I was like Fright shocked Night. that I loved Evil Dead 2 and and Reanimator. I think it was probably Fright Night. Maybe it was Fright Night. I no, I think it was definitely something that was more more parody based. That was like still a horror movie. I don't. I don't remember the exact example. Yeah, I guess but, it doesn't matter. But yeah, I wish I did. So, uh, but you said that at the time, as a as a junior high high school kid, you felt like those Dead Alive or like maybe not that one exactly, but those kind of like horror comedies you didn't like because it felt like they were making fun of. The thing that you liked quite a bit at the time, which were horror movies. There were some at the time that I felt like I was just like, especially growing up in a post-Scream era. So not necessarily even the 80s parodies, like also uh, early 2000 parodies where I was like, I still like the real thing. Like, I don't need you to make fun of the thing. I want the real thing. I I, I didn't want... uh, I had an antithesis when I was a teenager and I was, like, growing as a film fan to these movies that were, like... Felt like they were, like, stepping in and and being all smarmy about things that I was just, like, just getting attached to. And, like, movies making fun of slashers before I was... Like, when I was just getting attached to slashers. Uh, That was more my problem is, like... Guys, like, I know you're burned out by this shit, but, like, I don't find your parody all that funny because, like, I'm still getting used to the original movies and I'm still attached to them. Yeah, and so that was my theory kind of, like, watching these movies where I don't know which order you saw them. I don't know if – if and obviously you always liked L.A., so I'm not saying even that you, you were like, I don't like this because it's kind of mocking my thing I love. But just knowing the way that you felt thought about these types of movies in high school or junior high, that I think that if you were showing these two things, which is one is committing entirely to the premise and taking it 100% seriously and not at any point winking or going too over the top, and we're given the over-the-top version, the Peter that I've heard described to me from junior high and high school would immediately not necessarily dismiss – but gravitate heavily towards the 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 one that takes it a hundred percent seriously, and as I've talked about, I gravitate way to more towards the ones that were both uh, uh, participating in the in the genre, but having a lot of fun with the constructs of the genre itself, and thus I easily gravitate towards the Escape from LA version of it. Yeah, that's a fair theory, man. I mean, you know me really well, but that's a pretty fair theory is that part of the reason that I like New York more and I continue to like New York more is was a early antithesis to uh, parody of, uh, you know, genre works that I loved. But um, I'll say this right now that I do not think that Escape from L.A. is a proper parody of the first I agree. movie and I don't I think that it, it fails both as a parody of the first movie and action movies that followed and it also kind of fails as a parody of LA and that's like the two things that it's trying to do is sort of like tease the genre and tease LA as a unit and I think that if it did one of those things really really well I'd 
be more on the Escape from LA camp, but instead I'm on this this special camp of person that doesn't think Escape from LA is trash because a lot of people do think this movie is trash. That's why we're doing it this month. Uh, I'm more in the camp that it is a uh, fun movie that has a lot of great stuff in it, but it doesn't succeed at a lot of the many things it tries to do. So like I, I think you I think your 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 theory about me holds water, but I also think that like this movie would stand a better chance if it did a better job at what it was promising. And we're going to get into that right now. It is just so funny because I was resistant to the sincere versions of these things and liked the mocking of the uh, action and horror genres, especially. And you <laughs> were resistant to the over the top. I don't want to say necessarily parody because I, you're right. I don't think this movie is a parody of action movies, I just think it is a lot more no holds barred and and goes over the top and is not afraid to be goofy instead of taking itself uh, or attempting to take itself seriously as New York is and succeeding, I should say. Um, But it is funny that we you were like, oh, it's okay to have fun with these concepts, too. And I was like, oh, these the sincerity in these action and horror movies is amazing. I like this too. So it is funny that we really started on on opposite ends of the the spectrum for some of these genre things that we talk about so much and then met in the middle uh in our in our later on college years. Yeah, and, for sure. Yeah. And and that's uh and that's why we wanted to do this movie because it is a fascinating construct of a artist reacting to their own work, trying to build something new off of it. Very similar to Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, I think. Yep. Which we've covered on the show. Let's fucking get into it. Let's get into it. alternate taglines uh slash five second recap and you are uh 90 second recap peter i'd love to do that good i'm glad that you love to love to want to watch hey. i think you need to shorten that title <laughs> fun fact that was the first title of our show I'm, so this is alternate taglines feels like a very uh, very good time to mention what do you guys know what the actual tagline to this movie is? Which Snake is, is back. It's the fucking worst. I think they were trying to go for something really cool, and somehow with the font they were using and every and everything else, the fact that they didn't even have like an exclamation mark at the end, it just is Snake's back. Hey guys. Oh, Snake's back. Hey guys, it's Snake. Hi. So, I'm so Snake. I'd like to, I I'd like to propose. Snake's got to get the fuck out of here. Dot, dot, dot. Again. <laughs> Snake fucks off. Again. Yeah. He slithered in, but can he slither out? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then everyone's going to think it's like a fly situation where Kurt Russell is like half human, half snake. Miami, oh no! We did it again! <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's a really bad tagline, though. So when it, Which is weird, because... Your tagline should entice you into the movie. It shouldn't just describe your plot in three words. Like, hey, what's the plot of Escape from L.A.? Oh, let me tell you. So first, no, no, no. Three words. 
Snake is back? Back again. Snake is back. Call a friend. Mad, to tell mad, him mad, to see mad, the mad, movie. Mad. Call a friend. It is movie phone. Get is your it, tickets. Is <laughs> I think it's tell a friend. Hey! I don't think you need to call a friend. Back then, let me tell you about rollover minutes. And you know what's, what's Back worse? then, you couldn't afford to call a friend because every time you even got a call, that's a minute. Yeah. There's also just the fact that the tag they don't even attempt to uh, give us a tagline that has any kind of puns based on L.A. or Hollywood or just yeah. anything. Like, there's so many cliches associated with that um, piece of America, and it's just, nope, nothing. Like, classic, classic L.A. stuff, like, snakes in town to see some sights for a brief amount of time, because he also wants to leave as quick as possible. <laughs> Wait, what movie is the with a few days to kill? Uh, Predator Two. That's Predator see, two? that's the best tagline of all time. Like Predator uh, Two's tagline is better than the movie, and, and Predator Two is great. It's good. It's pretty good. You liked it way more on the episode. <laughs> I, I did. I did. Um, the episode it's, it's that taking is a turn. Listenable. Um, yeah. Okay. So ninety second recap. Snake Bliskin. Back in trouble with the authorities, getting into mischief, gunfighting in uh, New Las Vegas, Thailand, American province. And he gets brought in similar deal as before. They want him to go into the New Island prison, which is L.A. Guys, I know L.A. is not currently an island. But this movie posits that a radical political candidate preacher predicts that there's going to be a massive earthquake. And then this earthquake happens and it separates L.A. off into an island, implying that God is on the side of this weird president. There's a lot of weird stuff that happens in the exposition. I I should let you know that that is a very common prediction of preachers from the 90s. Uh, was that uh, California or L.A. was so sinful that one of the earthquakes was eventually going to break it off into the ocean? As a California resident who does not want to live under a Trump presidency, I would love that if we were split off. Uh, so Snake gets brought in and he's got to go into L.A. Island, the new uh, sinful prison of the future, to get a special weapons program back that the president's daughter stole. The president's daughter is considered not only expendable, but hey, it'd be nice if you also killed her while you were in there. Uh, he goes in. He meets all sorts of L.A. weirdos. He meets, you know, a plastic surgeon weirdo with Bruce Campbell. He meets a Nazi dude. Uh, this uh, David Carradine. Uh, or is it Keith Carradine? David Carradine, uh, one of the Carradines. He, uh, you know, he meets Peter uh, Fonda, the surfer. Peter Fonda, surfer. Steve Buscemi as himself. Steve Buscemi as like a douchebag Hollywood agent type. Uh, He meets Pam Greer as a uh, trans woman that's not handled well in the movie. I'll say we'll get to that. The movie uh, sort of is Snake on this wild run trying to get this package back. He gets it briefly. And Valeria Galino. Yes, and Valeria Galino, who is not a weirdo, really. She's just sort of like a woman that's She's got a weird haircut. She's got a a weird haircut, but I bet you in 1996 that haircut would have caught the eye of uh, many a grunge kid. It's 2013, uh, though. She's got a weird yeah. tattoo. The tattoo was weird. Yeah, yeah. She, okay, so that's, that's how, how she's... That's how you know she's weird. Oh, okay. And then at the end of the movie, he recovers the package, escapes from the island on a helicopter with the help of some uh, gangsters that he manages to convince to be on his side. Uh, and then uh, Snake Plissken, 
He's this doomsday device. He's about to hand it off to the president. And the president decides to uh, shoot Snake Plissken. Snake Plissken uh, is actually a hologram, not unlike Total Recall. And so when they shoot Snake Plissken, it's nothing happening. He's actually like a half mile away or whatever. And he has the doomsday weapon and he fires it off, which sends an EMP signal, which uh, puts, makes the whole planet black. Knocks back the planet, in the words of Stacy Keach, 500 years. Yeah, it, it removes anything mechanical or electric it fries anything that's operating so it's gonna it's gonna take down the internet it's gonna take down power grids it's gonna take down the cars of the future yeah cars laptops they have have, have starters that's electricity like you can't it's gonna take down everyone's zunes every this takes place in 2013 yep the zune uh that occurred when this this happened Phenomenal. Catastrophic. Really catastrophic. Catastrophic. We were all saying back then we were like we were like Zoon 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 Zoon. I want you in my room because yeah. we wanted to listen to Zoons all the time. Let's spend the night together listening mm. to music on this Zoon. Yeah. That's a, that's a classic generation defining hit. And it's, it's a gone. Classic now. thing it's we used to gone say. Gone because Snake took that from everybody. He did. He took it from everyone. And let's just say right now, he's looking like a snack Pliskin, more like, because Kurt Russell still looks good in this. It's sort of a Harrison Ford in Crystal Skull thing where you're like, hey, dude, good on you. You you got maybe more ripped than you were in the first movie for this. Yeah, like, he, he look, definitely looks bulkier. You can absolutely tell his affection for the role. Well, he's the reason that this movie got made. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah he but wrote, I, produced it. He, he, yep. he was a big... His, his only writing credit. I just meant more in comparison to Harrison Ford on Indy, where I read at least for years that he in that Harrison Ford said or was rumored to have said that he stayed in the shape he did because he always hoped he would get to do Indy again. And I can imagine Kurt Russell's enthusiasm probably was like, I got to I got to get swole every day because who knows? John could roll up with another escape script and boom, I got to be ready for it. Kurt didn't give a shit about a certain number of movies that he did in the 90s, but he really, really gave a shit about Snake Plissken. Mm-hmm. And Harrison Ford did not give a shit about Han Solo at all or any of his Star Wars movies or most of his movies, except for his few art movies. He did the movie with Roman Polanski, he did it with Lies Beneath. He seemed to care about but yeah he really always liked indiana jones so in a sense like i think of kurt russell as snake plissken and i think of harrison ford as indiana jones because those are the roles that they always feel so committed to yep so i don't think we need to get into our personal experience because we kind of went over in the in the topics topics but i did want to mention this so this movie came out 15 years after the original movie uh that is incredibly common nowadays. Yes. It is wildly uncommon up until about the last 10 years. It's one thing to – remaking properties has always existed. And you could easily call this a soft remake. The only reason I wouldn't call it that is that sequels in the 90s, especially in the 80s, they were much less concerned with this idea of advancing a bigger story. It was usually, I mean, that's one of the reasons why Empire Strikes Back was so revolutionary. It was like, in 1980, most sequels were just make the same movie again. And Empire Strikes Back didn't in any way, shape, or form. This is much more common, which is, okay, now he escapes from a different city and he meets different characters and everything else associated with that. So, this this doesn't feel so much like a remake, even though we would call it that now, or a, or a soft reboot, as that's just how they made sequels. <laughs> um, but it is crazy that 15 years passed and they made a sequel in 1996. Again, a weird year for this. 1996, like, I was aware of shit 
which is a very weird thing when you're looking back at something you didn't discover till 40 years later. Because I didn't know about Escape from L.A., though I do remember seeing a uh, sequence on it on Entertainment Tonight, the earthquake sequence they did a big thing on. I used to try to watch Entertainment Tonight, but I just didn't wasn't aware of Snake Plissken. I wasn't aware of uh, John Carpenter until a few years later. So the idea that like this was out when I was, like, seeing fucking Congo and Volcano in theaters is very weird. Well, it's funny you brought it up, just the comparison to modern-day stuff. I was watching this, and I was kind of, like, thinking, like, this is kind of the uh, prototype for long-delayed sequels, like Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, and Basic Instinct 2 owe a debt to this because Escape from L.A. was ahead of its time and saying, like, eh, enough time's passed, but let's just do another one. I'm sure there's a bunch of people who've been waiting over a decade for this, you know? And this is something that could only happen in a post-cable rerun era. Mm-hmm. Um, only in LA. Only This is something that could happen only in Hollyweird. Because they have to be able to be like, okay, we're still you know, showing this movie 18 times a month on these four channels. or the, They had to have yeah. seen some sort of money like coming in from the previous property that they were like, okay. It's plausible that people will have seen this movie enough on cable that they'll be like, okay, I'll, I'll take a shot on a sequel. And not only that, they gave the movie 50 million fucking dollars, which is like a lot. The movie does not look like 50 million dollars. I think all three of us would agree. It, it is the budget no. of Jurassic Park from th- three years earlier. And it, yeah, that's and it's not really fair because Jurassic Park is like so perennial. Like it looks better than Jurassic World. Which no, I know, but but I'm saying that it's insane that they gave a budget to Spielberg of $50 million to make Jurassic Park this hugely profitable book that studios were fighting over. And then they also gave $50 million to John Carpenter, who I think his previous movie was Memoirs of an Invisible Man, to make a 15-year sequel, 15-year late sequel to, at best, a cult classic. And think about this. So, for one, they shot this movie in L.A., which saves a lot of money. Yes. Well, they it's, love L.A. Because they love L.A. Uh, because at the time, L.A. had a lot of credits for filmmakers, yep. and they made mm-hmm. it a lot easier to get for filmmakers to work there. That's why there's so many movies like Pulp Fiction and such that were just like, fuck it, we're shooting. We're going to shoot three miles down the road. And that has a lot of benefits in a lot of ways. Like, for instance, like you don't have to pay for trailers and, and a bunch of other shit because everybody drives home at the end of the day. Right. You can also get people to sign on easier because they don't have to fly to Puerto Rico or the Philippines or wherever they filmed for Jurassic Park. When you go to Jurassic Park, you're basically setting up a compound. You're like, we're going to be filming in the Philippines or wherever, Costa Rica. Well, I mean, when you go to Jurassic Park, you should set up a compound or else those dinosaurs are going to get right out. It just makes sense, you know. If you're going to go to Jurassic Park, come prepared. Set up a compound. Read a wire cutter article on gear. Go online, do your research, get a get a travel book, and don't just flip through it when you're on the turlet. Give it a good read, okay? Yeah. You know, chain link fences? Get one of those, but bigger. Sunscreen? Oh. It's a tropical island. Skin cancer is a real risk. Bring sunscreen. Tam, Tam you called Tam. it. You called it. You nailed it. You put the boards in. You did Everyone's it right. worried yeah. about the dinosaurs. Think about the other things that can get you, like the sun. Hey, just because you're Sam Neill doesn't mean you can't get a little bit of sunburn. 
The sun is the greatest predator, if you think about it. How are they washing their food? With water with that might contain some sort of bacteria that your body's not familiar with? Gross. React negatively? Boil your water, folks. Boil your Boil, water. Yeah. All the food looks delicious. Doesn't mean you don't need to boil that ice cream. Have John Hammond. Peter Boyle eating. come over. Try your water. After 48 hours, if he's okay, you can have that water. I mean, I'll tell you what. Like, look, Peter, Tom. I'm still a little angry because our Jurassic Park, how to set up a park podcast, our first incarnation of that we tried to do on this, it, it, it got canceled after three episodes. I'm still a little pissed because I'm still hearing about all these Jurassic Parks out there that people are just getting sunburned. All right. Uh, 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 because by dinosaurs. 3D studios don't want to fund important podcasts like that. I'm really sorry that that got shut down on you. I'm, I'm sorry this is coming out at a weird time, but yeah. like people, do your research. We said it for three straight episodes, each episode longer than the last. <laughs> I like to think that we're mostly a pro sunscreen podcast. Oh, and definitely anti-being eaten by dinosaurs. At minimum. Don't get eaten by dinosaurs, guys. You're under that, that so hot Costa Rican sun. You're you're burning. It's a different sun than it is in the Philippines or Mexico or wherever you're from. It's a different sun. I don't know if people know that. It's a different that. sun. And honestly, a raptor is not going to eat you if you're covered in a fine layer of sunscreen. He's going to take one lick of you and go, ew. What's yeah. this layer of stuff over him? I've lost my appetite. And then he's going to You know what else you're probably not thinking of? Like hats, wear them. Yep, folks, folks, wear your hats. Oh wide God. brim, wide brim, wide brim. Uh, folks, I know you like your baseball hats, but I read an article. You're supposed to wear the full sun hat. I know it looks dorky. Pull the little drawstring up to your chin. You're gonna feel great. Dorks don't Look. get sunburnt. Look, dorks you probably already you probably aren't already own a fedora because you were probably the worst in high school. Put on the fedora. It doesn't matter now. You're seeing dinosaurs. You're going to protect yourself. All right? Also, stop getting eaten. Those fuckers are eating all of you guys. Velociraptors do not want to share a frame with somebody wearing a fedora. No. That is fact. That is protection. That's what we're talking about. Also, this is general. Wear condoms, guys. Just wear them. Go to the general and save some time by not having a baby. You met some nice lady. Jurassic Park cafeteria. You wore your sunscreen. You wore your hat. All right? You put up fences so the dinosaurs don't eat you. Yeah. Also, common archaeological fact, pterodactyls were allergic to latex. So, again, just another layer of protection. That's another layer of protection. You You can't have a pterodactyl bite your ding-dong off if it knows it's going to get an allergic reaction. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. If you are fighting the pterodactyls, try using your dick-covered, your (laughs) condom-covered dick. Just wave it around in an aggressive manner. The pterodactyls will freak out. They'll back off. If you have a dick-covered condom. It means the dinosaurs have attacked and tore your friend to pieces. <laughs> right? Leave. Oh. Leave. Okay. This is, this is a public service. It's, you know, I know. It was a public service. And. Oh, folks. Folks. Needed to get that out of the way. Now, can anyone remind me what I was talking about before we went off? It's more expensive to shoot outside of LA than it generally than it is 
Um, obviously, it's way cheaper to shoot in Toronto and Ontario and such now because they give these amazing film credits. But in the mid '90s, it was it would have been way cheaper to shoot in LA than it would have been like in Costa Rica with like moving a whole crew and having them live on land out there and like the amount of work it takes to like be like, yes, Sam Neill, you're gonna be in Costa Rica for two months, but blah 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 so like it's it's a it's a thing so like i don't know exactly where the money went on this apart from cgi which they thought was cutting edge at the time but they got uh fucked on the cgi i think i think a lot of it must have gone to the cast though though it does have a lot of people that like weren't people it had it has like a david it has like people that would show up in next that will show up next week pam greer it's got david carradine it's it's got like people that like and um, it's got Robert Carradine. Sorry, I just wanted to. His name's that. Robert Carradine. Robert Carradine. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm not going to believe you on this one, but um, <laughs> but it's got Stacy Keach. It's got Michelle Forbes. It's got Steve Buscemi. It feels like even the secondary, uh, obviously Peter Fonda. It's got it's got so it's got it put care into the amount of Carradines that the movie had. Bruce Campbell. You know, these are not like. Normally, when you watch these 90s action movies, you go, I recognize two of those people, and the rest were people that tried so hard and just didn't make it. Uh, yeah, they tried so hard and they came so far, but in the end, it doesn't it didn't really, really matter. It didn't really matter because uh, they didn't have an acting career uh, at the end of it. Uh, this one, <laughs> this one, everyone, I feel like you recognize, and I think that all of them you would have recognized in 1996. Now, yeah, this is like Steve Buscemi the same year as Fargo, so we're not talking like he's not B or A-list quite yet. Right. He's on the pre- precipice of it, but he's not like, he's still a person you go, oh, I know right. who that guy like, is. Like, I was popping for so many names during the opening credits. I was just like, what? Uncle Ben's in this? What? Peter Fonda's in this? What? But I can imagine at the time, maybe it didn't hit, like, the same way. Maybe oh, my like, God. You know, the president's in the Uncle Ben. Like, oh, okay. That's a, that's a person, you know? I mean, this cast is geared towards the type of people that would have liked this movie. Oh, yes. Yes. And this is a cast of some Carpenter uh, alums, and it's also people that he would work with in... Ghosts of Mars. Like I said, Pam Greer, Al Carradine, Peter Jason is in the movie. And can we talk about Peter Jason real quick? Uh, Peter Jason is the guy who uh, introduces Snake to the prison where he's like, before Stacey Keach comes in, he's like sort of showing him off to the cameras and he's like, yeah, what do you have to say to a new moral America? That sort of thing. So mm-hmm. I think that uh, one, I know we've already talked about Escape from New York, but one thing to let you know right off the bat without being too cheap like one elegant way that they let you know this is not escape from new york is escape from new york has lee van cleef who's an old western actor he's in good and bad and the ugly actually he's in i think he's in all the dollars movies right i'm pretty sure he is yeah he's in all three he's an old western actor he's got this amazing mustache he's oh it's, mean it's a, look it's incredible He's this mean-looking motherfucker, and he just comes and he's like, I'm about to knock your ass out of the world, war hero. Like, he's got this great lines in Escape from New York. And then Peter Jason in Escape from L.A. comes in. He's this sort of, like, sarcastic character where he's like, why wouldn't you want to live in the new the new moral America where the new version of America in this is a evangelical-run America, which is very scary to every – if you're a decent person, that should be terrifying because it's uh, – atheists are banned. Smoking, yep. drinking, drugs are all like heavily, heavily, uh, you know, uh, 
prosecuted against the first movie if you got sent to new york you were probably a bad person if you get sent to la in this like you might just like not believe in god so actually i want to pause on this for for a second because it's one of my favorite components about this movie god you know i feel like we keep saying prescient when we're talking about john carpenter movies but motherfucker like (laughs) this this is a movie about a disaster that befalls the united states and a fundamentalist christian taking advantage of that to rally the nation into giving up a bunch of their rights, uh, which was prescient four years, five years from when this movie came out and feels like on the precipice of being crazy prescient right now. This is where we we kind of headed, not to this degree, obviously, uh, with with George Bush, but that was it. Like it was Mm -hmm. a bunch of fundamentalist Christians taking away everyone's rights and people cheering it. And then a bunch of people being labeled as like atheists are the bad guys. These people are the bad guys. Everyone in, in the country went along with it to uh to somewhat of a degree i shouldn't say everyone but a good majority was like we, we need to do this and i think one thing that la does uh differently than new york which i really like is that it feels you're right it feels like in new york they're like this is a prison we don't allow guns they can go live here this is a nightmare where in la it's like fuck it just throw them in there they have a whole goddamn arsenal and everyone's just like uh well, what if they come after us? They don't give a shit to that level. It is just placing people away from society. It's not about a new version of uh, rehabilitation or right. whatever they would call their prison system. And on the the notes you made about the, the parallels that we're kind of seeing in our contemporary times, uh, Taslima, played by Valeria Galino in this, she tells Snake right before this, uh, she's killed, he's like, what are you here for? And she says, I'm a, I was a Muslim. And it's like, it's right there in front of you for the audience. Audience. just it's thrown out there it's this these are people who are just living their normal lives but because it's not good enough for the government that has seized control through fear and hysteria you're thrown on this island with everybody else that's not considered right not considered you know moral and walking the appropriate line or seeing yeah. disgusting shades of that in modern society unfortunately this, mo- this movie was pretty prescient for that stuff i wish it was sort of like South- southland tales and i think this is a better movie than southland tales i wish it was a little better at how it communicated it's like hyper liberalism because like i'm all about that in a movie if it can be communicated well that's fair um and i think you're especially like commenting on some of the transphobic stuff at the end which is unfortunate and it's one of those really tough things that it's kind of like a robin hood prince of thieves situation i feel like where it's You can kind of tell that John Carpenter had the best of intentions and he just fell in his fucking face trying to be like, hey, look, this is okay too. No one cares. And it's like, yeah, it is okay, And no one does care. But we're we're emphasizing. Uh, But I did. I did want to mention one thing about the president that I really liked and how they commit to it, which is when when he is faced with like the end of the world and doesn't know what to do. He just gets scared, abandons the situation, and says he's going to go pray. Yep. And and I actually really like that because I like the idea of this kind of fundamentalist evil that also is conning himself. I find that always more interesting than this idea of like, oh, this fundamentalist preacher or, uh, you know, religious fascism or any of that kind of stuff is using religion as a tool because like the Mike Huckabees and the Ted Cruz's of the world and all those types of people that would like institute a version of theocracy in this country if they had their druthers and the power. 
they are those type of cowards who are not actually good at their jobs. They're good at spilling this kind of propaganda. And if things turned against them, they would just be like, I, yeah, I, yeah, I'm just going to go pray in my room. They're weak, timid, scared men of the world around them. And they're using their faith to justify their bigotry. And if any of that came crashing down, they would be exposed for the, at the end of the day, just run-of-the-mill cowards who are scared of people that are different than them. The president is kind of shown, maybe not to that degree, but he's showing at the end of the, the day of a sniveling coward who goes and hides in his room. And I feel like a lot of these people are in our real world are exactly like that. And what's interesting is that they show that the president's military staff and the people in the, in the control bunker with him, like when he does that, the, I'm going to pray, like they give each other this look. It's just like, oh, well, great. Like he doesn't know what he's doing. As you said, the characters are aware of it, too. And Carpenter's not afraid to show that. We need someone to pull the trigger here. Like the Stacy Keach is like this like cold pragmatist who actually like weirdly enough in the movie gets like in trouble for yelling at the president. Like the president looks at him like I'm the president. But Stacy Keach is like. He doesn't say it out loud, but he's like, but you're an incompetent and I need to fucking make decisions because like there is a decision that needs to be made. Like that is basically Bush and Cheney. (laughs) Yeah. Cheney probably like insulted Bush all the time by being like, "Uh, Mr. President, you've got to fucking step up to the plate. George, Mr. Bush, like he like throws in something (laughs) just for like minimal respect. But like, that's probably how the relationship was or him with uh, Karl Rove. And they made always the bad decision, pretty much like almost always. (laughs) The comparison stands, Aaron. It's pretty spot on. Yes. Well, it's pretty spot on, and I feel like it underlines a cowardice that is, is at the end of the day, the reason that they are like they are. The way that they're able to... uh, placate or to, or hide that fear is this idea of like hey you guys you you're not behaving the way that my big brother god says or my dad's gonna kick your ass and the second like hey oh, oh look behind me my, my dad's not there protecting me anymore uh i'm gonna go hide in my room for a little bit so it's the equivalent I, of a douchebag who's like you know my dad will sue you my dad's rich you know <laughs> Yeah. Wait till and then, my father hears about this. So, so I, I feel like that comp- – because I, I think the more common component in film when you talk about like religious fascism or a theocracy or whatever else is the idea of an evil leader exploiting religion to, to get his way. Uh, and I think the much more common version is abject coward who has deluded himself into thinking that uh, his version of an all-powerful dad who can kick your ass lets him uh, dis, you know, take his cowardice and display it as a form of bigotry. I'd buy that. I, I just think generally the movie works well as uh, a sort of like war room movie, like a war room satire. Yeah. Mm. And it's also a movie, to be frank, and, and a little macro here, it works really well in the micro, little great moments. But in the grand scope, you're like, why wasn't there more here? Why was there so much frustration in this late second act stuff? Yeah. These little small moments where you're like hinting at a, a great movie, which is John Carpenter sometimes, even in, the, in his late career mode, couldn't help but be a genius sometimes. I just wanted to add on to that really quick. And it also expand on something that you said earlier. Um, you're talking about how this movie acts as a, a parody of L.A. culture. 
but doesn't seem to go far enough with it. And Mm -hmm. what's interesting is that this movie was made so quickly after the L.A. riots went down and in the middle of a moment where L.A. just had this national reputation with race relations and gang problems and stuff like that. And while the movie goes to great lengths to kind of um, satirize or even celebrate the the underground kind of weird culture that existed in LA it doesn't ever get into serious examinations or even just kind of taking one stance or another about gang culture or, or anything like that in LA like Cuervo Jones is like this military revolutionary but like we never see any kind of like blown up parody of like the you know the Crips or the Bloods or you know anything like that and I was kind of wondering why he didn't take that route like why he didn't imagine what the gangs of LA would blow up into if they were left to their own devices with, you know, in a sealed off, you know, area. I think he would be more interested in punching up than punching down, which I have a lot of respect for. And also, I don't know if Carpenter would handle black street gangs that well, based on how he handles like three people of color in uh, Ghosts of Mars next week. (laughs) Yeah, you're, you're right, Tom, in that it was kind of, he was like, oh, after the L.A. earthquakes, and this is obviously two years before the movie, and then the riots, which is 94, 93, 94, uh, San Francisco earthquake, I should say. He was like, oh, I have an idea for this movie, that, that this is kind of what L.A. looks like descended into chaos, and this is how I can I can present this this movie. And that kind of brought, apparently, life back into this this script. But I also think that he is not trying to make a movie that is actually trying to comment on anything real in in what was going on in LA uh, when this movie was being created. It is definitely a germ of an idea. I I think that if he would have tried to have any moment that was like talking about the the racism of the LA cops or that kind of led to the riots and or talking about like the poverty of the time or all that kind of stuff, we would probably be sitting here and going, holy shit, that was handled as poorly as the Hershey stuff. Right. So, so it, cause it's just not, it's not the movie for that. And we can, we can just talk about the, the Hershey stuff quickly because I think Pam Greer is really good. And I, I kind of see what they were trying to do. Where I think John Carpenter's idea of like, look at Snake Plissken. He is such an equal opportunity person that he doesn't even care that his friend has, uh, you know, decided that they are a different gender and has acted as such. I think it's supposed to come off as Snake Plissken being this accepting person, and instead it's because not, they're drawing. He says something like, "You've still got a gun between your legs." Yeah, and he feels Hershey up to like establish that point where it's like, so, "Here's what I mean from the perspective." No, you're right. And I want to make sure I'm, I'm being clear in, in how I'm explaining this. I think the idea that, that Snake Plissken is is being as Snake Plissken-y to, to her as anyone else, that it's like, look, he treats everyone the same, like shit. They're going so out of their way, I think, to underline that, look, Snake Plissken treats this person like shit, too, but he's treating them like shit in a very specific way into who they are as a person. And that person is a trans person that it becomes that kind of like I am underlying my okayness with this in a way that makes it feel super transphobic and extra like, uh, yeah, sure. You may have had good intentions and what you're trying to do. I see the seams, but at the end of the day, you come out looking really bad. 
Especially in the modern context. Especially because Steve yes. Buscemi introduces the scene by saying, weird scene we have here, Snake. Let me do the talking. Mm-hmm. What happens then is that Snake goes and basically, like, threatens Hershey right away. Which, like, under Aaron's reading, like, I can totally see that because it's like, oh, Snake is such a badass. He doesn't let anybody intimidate him, even this, like, fucking gang lord. He's not like, oh, wait, What? What happened to you? Like, he's not weirded out by it. So I think that's where the quote unquote attempt at like showing how non-biased Snake was. Like, he's not even bothered by this. But he still calls her Carjack, her old name. Like, he specifically, it it is something that hasn't aged well because I'm sure Carpenter was like, gay culture is cool. But like, he was cool with gay culture as he saw it in 1996. Carpenter is very progressive and a lot of his movies are very, very progressive. So I don't want to like shit on him too much. But like, this is something that needs to be called out. Right. Yeah. But he calls Hershey by her old name, Carjack, which was when Hershey was identifying as a man, which is like just something that like now we know is bullshit. It's it's a thing where, again, I agree, Peter, like I feel like John Carpenter was expressing his ideas of, hey, let me show how fine uh, Snake Plissken is with anyone by him not being plussed. Steve Buscemi's character is plussed by this. Yeah. Snake Plissken is non-plussed. That's how much he's fine with it. And and then that's... It's kind of like that that person who really sees themselves as like this progressive version of, of whatever and is like, well, I'm not being racist. I make fun of everyone equally. Yeah. Yeah. You're not really close, bud. Like, you... <laughs> I, I'm glad that you in your head see everyone equally, but what you're what you're forgetting is all the other nuance outside of yourself. The key word is the nuance. Uh, like it thinks by depicting this thing and doing it this way, it's like this makes it okay, but it doesn't appreciate all the finer details and aspects of just you know courtesy and respect that go into treating a character like that. And because of that, that's why it just has aged incredibly poorly. So yeah, uh, something that I had about the Hershey sequence and basically Hershey's uh, introduction into the plot is I felt like it came far too late uh, and uh, seemed a little extraneous. I'm not going to lie. Like, this is somebody who is like um, this movie's equivalent of Brain, uh, Henry Dean Stanton's character from the first movie who was an old buddy of Snakes who becomes valuable. And it's like, by this point, it just feels like we should be wrapping up and getting into the final climactic action sequence. But it's like, oh, we need transportation now. Um, let's go visit a brand new character with strong ties to Snake and get all this out of the way. And then Hershey doesn't even really get, as far as I recall, any means of just like a satisfying payoff or anything. It's just like, here's a... here's a. Well, I think she just blows up in the helicopter. Right, but like, a bummer. I don't know. It's introduced too late into the movie and then gone kind of a throwaway death. And it's just like, ah, I don't know. So that's one thing I really like about this movie. And not that Hershey specifically died. (laughs) I, I like it more on the Valeria one, which sucks because she's a great actress and I really hate that we don't get to see her and stuff anymore Mm -hmm. and but like i like her and even stuff like clean slate let alone like hot shots and Mm -hmm. you know she she was a great uh she was a great foil for like a comedic lead character uh in a lot of those like parody movies and she unfortunately didn't get enough to do so that's why i can say from that perspective didn't like that she was out of the movie so quickly from a 
movie perspective, I love that they set her up as a romantic lead and then kill her. I love that they keep setting up these people and then putting them out of the picture so quickly. That is where I think this movie comes closest to true parody, which is, oh, he meets the girl as the romantic interest and oh, oh, never mind. Like she gives the Samuel L. Jackson Deep Blue Sea speech and then gets shot. Like right. so, it's really good. It's just so mean. Like, it's very yeah, first, mean. The first movie is not so mean because the first movie basically she gets introduced as like just a survivor. Like she's just looking to survive, and then she's like, "Hey, hey, snake! Like you could be my ticket out of here." Which, like, I guess, like from a gender perspective, you could think that's gross in 2017 that she's like willing to use sex to get off the island or something. It doesn't particularly bother me, but when we get to the Escape from New York episode, we'll dive into that. In this movie, it feels so much meaner because they give you time for them to, like, snake to care about her and stuff. Yeah. And, like, the problem is she's too good. If she were a Tara Reid type or who's the fake Tara Reid in this movie who plays the president's daughter? Oh, yeah. AJ Langer. Yeah. Yeah. Fake Tara Reid. Uh, if she... Like, you're, you're making it seem like Tara Reid is, like, the the like the good version of the actress that, <laughs> that she's trying to ape. AJ Langer was on My So-Called Life, which which people seem to like. It's true, but she's not very she's not very good in the movie. But AJ Langer, uh, I think if she had even been in that role, if they had switched it somehow, which they really couldn't because of the whole white people are in power, uh, people of color and poor people are at the bottom. Yeah, they could really yeah. do that. But like, if you happen to switch the roles or whatever, it would have worked better because like I cared about his relationship with Valeria. That was something that I was like, and when she just gets murdered, yes, it, it does function as a parody, but I think that it feels emotionally rude to have her get killed like that in that manner in a movie. Like, it, well, where, like, it, it, it's kind of well, like the movie telling you something is important, telling you something is important, and then it's like, fuck you, it's not important. But, like, if she were worse, if she were, like, a terrible actress, it would kind of work better. But hold on, though. Like, um, you like that part in Deep Blue Sea, right, Peter? That's a great part, but also the movie has, like, ten different heroes to replace Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> I love that part in Samuel L. Jackson, in Deep Blue Sea. Fair enough, because she gives the same speech, almost. <laughs> like, we're going to rise up. We're going to fight this menace. We can do it together. St- you know, stand with me. So that I, I think the, the bullet points it's hitting is the same as the Deep Blue Sea moment. And I also like it from the sense that in, in Escape from New York, he eventually assembles like a ragtag group of helpers. In this, he really is a loner because everyone keeps dying. Valeria's death is it works. I think it works as an actual like effective tragic moment because it's the senselessness of her death underlines the movie's entire point. Uh, you're saying that the corrupt members of the establishment are putting down common good people who haven't actually committed anything that could ethically yeah. be considered a crime. Teslima's death works and it, the fact that it's so senseless it, it hits you. It's like damn like she was actually starting to like seem like she was going to contribute to this plot and her life was just cut short because that's how it is in this world and that works and then like conversely like i said hershey's it's just weird because she's given that much more importance to snake like it's not somebody who needed to bond with snake oh like we already know each other you're somebody i see as like a little bit more than like almost like i'm a level of a peer and then you're in really quick and gone from the movie that quickly and without any like sudden like 
without any effective like oof to Hershey's exit from the movie. Whereas like when Brain died, it was kind like again, it was like a little tragic. He died by his own like mistakes, but it was like you felt that because it was like oh like that was somebody who had snakes back, and you saw the the connection they had of just kind of like utility that they were to each other. And in this one, it's just like nah, like she's just gone from the movie. Whatever. Next. And I think that I think that that actually taps into something that is a problem with the movie, which is that it doesn't have a consistent tone or a consistent style of comedy or a consistent style of satire or like there's or even like two consistent tones that is kind of wavering between. And like that really that moment of like emotional brutalness would work in like a Game of Thrones where like the movie is full of this sort of like life isn't fair feels kind of out of sync with like the bad cgi jaws at universal studios that he like when he's he's riding his sub in and there's like a cgi jaws in the water and it's like but is jaws the ride or is jaws the shark in this <laughs> right. situation like it's weird because like that feels like a fucking like seltzer comedy like a Ooh, an epic movie or whatever, or like that uh, meet the Spartans kind of thing. I think I think your read's a little off in what it's doing. And this goes a little bit to what we talked about within the Mouth of Madness when we were ranking Carpenter movies, is that and, and this may be just a personal predilection. I love movies where, and there's not that many of them, The Big Trouble in Little Chinas and The Army of Darknesses, where the hero seems relatively incompetent. Escape from New York, watching him again back to back, Snake seems pretty competent. Like, he gets into he gets into a lot of scrapes. He gets into mm-hmm. a lot of Indiana Jones situations. But he is relatively good at his role and his job that he's been assigned to. Yeah. This movie feels very different in that he just, he has no plan. He fucks up everything. He gets like his entire like, oh, I'm going to take this from the president is I'm going to hop on this motorcycle in a parade and just run after him and try to get like he seems to be wildly incompetent. When he finally gets the suitcase, he trips and falls into a well. When he meets the girl that he would normally try to protect, she gets shot during the middle of his big speech. Um, he he does end up in a good spot at the end, but even his ambush really kind of fails in most ways. Like he, it, Part of the good twist of this movie is that not just the ending, which we need to talk about almost immediately because we're running out of time, but also the, the fact that Oh, he finally displayed a level of competence that he has yet to show. Even even the flu that he's given in this movie, unlike the last movie, is meaningless. He was just tricked into thinking that he's going to die in 10 hours when they literally gave him a cold, not a super virus. So jumping off that, I know you said earlier, like this was the era where long form narratives weren't as important. But I just think, it, as again, as I said earlier, it's notable that Snake isn't as on the ball in this one as he was in Escape from New York. And yeah. the first one, like, you know, like he can disarm three guys ambushing him in a heartbeat. Like he's part Terminator, part Bruce Lee, part Clint Eastwood. He's a complete badass in New York. And that's kind of oh yeah put down for like visceral thrills. And in this one, like, you know, characters are like, oh, that's Snake, but he seems slower. He seems like not himself. And it's like, hmm, that's interesting. But we're not 
not going to dwell on it. And then it's like, oh, like well, you had all these big adventures in Cleveland that brought you back to this point. And it's like, hmm, that's also interesting. Why well, I think the through line works is that he lost the remaining faith that he had in New York. And now he doesn't care. And he hasn't cared in a long time. So his attempt to reconcile or to produce the same type of actions doesn't work anymore because now he's had 13 years to not give a shit. Okay. Right? So even when he tries to kind of give a shit because he doesn't want to die, it it manifests in these unsuccessful half-hearted ways that end in failure until he finally pulls it together at the end. Mm -hmm. So I think think it does connect really well. I think it's also very entertaining on a movie perspective of our action hero, which means more in this case because it's an action hero that we know. Big Trouble in Little China is great, but Jack Burton is someone who we meet in that movie. So he doesn't have any persona to deconstruct and make him the incompetent bubbling fool where this one, I think actually even adds more gravitas to the fact that, Hey, we knew how competent snake was at some point, And now he really is fucking up everything left and right. And, of course, he's still Snake Plissken. He still comes out on top to some perspective. They're able to deconstruct him as a character and and poke some laughs at his uber competence or semblance of uber competence in the first movie. Okay. That actually makes me like Escape from L.A. less. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start this over then. Because there's... <laughs> Delete that from your head. Because I can see where you got that from. Like, to be honest, like that through that reading of it, I can see where you get it from because there are multiple moments where Snake's like super competent and then he fucks up. I like it. I would like it more if they were doing a parody where Snake's super competent still fails him or like he's super competently doing a stupid thing. Like, almost mixing in Big Trouble and Little China DNA, where, like, Jack Burton is trying to do the right thing, and, like, sometimes he does the right thing, but it's kind of, like, what he's doing is stupid. He's missing the point. Like, that would be more what I think would be a good satire. And this, it's, like, him just, like, occasionally being a fuck-up, but occasionally being super competent. Like, he's super competent during the, uh, one of my favorite moments in the film. Two of my favorite moments in the film, actually, are, are him being super competent, and that's probably just me liking escape from new york better bangkok rules bangkok rules where he throws up the can and he like makes this he he makes a deal with all these these gunfighters around him he's they're about to execute him he's like oh we make a game of this and you totally buy it because these are people that have been living their life like bartering off of their own life like that's that's who they are they're they're dangerous gangsters who's like their life is their greatest asset because this is a collapsed anarchy and he throws up this can and he says like when the can hits the floor we all start shooting and he yeah, throws we draw. Can immediately starts shooting all of them draw. and and that's a great snake moment because it's him as a beautiful anti-hero yes i want to be very clear that i don't think he's a jack burton ash williams character i'm saying that it would work better if he was hyper competent but doing stupid things hyper competently That would be a better satire. Fair enough. I think that he became his last semblance of caring was removed in Escape from New York. And so Escape from L.A., we have a 13 year character who has lived a life of of complete apathy. It's not like he's incompetent. Was I said the word a lot, but I don't mean that he's legitimately incompetent that. But he cares about his life. He's still fighting for his life, but he cares about his life way less in L.A. than he did in New York. And that is a world weary beaten down person and so his attempts at rescue it's why he just is like fuck it i'm gonna race as fast to this goddamn 
LA as possible. And I don't care what this, what you guys are saying in my ear. He, it's not a semblance of incompetence as much as like his motivation that we saw in New York is not as present. And he's trying to get it back. But as a result, he just is, he's displaying a level incompetence. It's like if Michael Jordan hasn't played a game of basketball in five years and goes back on the court with people who are more engaged, he's going to look like an idiot, even though Michael Jordan is awesome. And, and Michael Jordan is trying really hard. He just doesn't remember all the moves. I think that when I, tr- I turn on the movie is the two key points and that's that when Steve Buscemi shoots his leg in the sewer, he drops the case and then he has to go down the tube. I'm like, the movie just fluffed its runtime by 20 minutes. That's very mm-hmm. frustrating for me as a viewer. And I think that, that the, the entire second act of the movie is literally 20 minutes too long because they couldn't figure out how to get him to Hershey. I'm fine with Hershey as like a character, like ignoring the social implications of Hershey as a transphobic character. They take way too long to get to Hershey. Uh, for being so central to the third act. And then he just like getting shot in the leg and falling down a sewer, even though he has like a big badass gun and he's like a proved himself to be a pretty competent killer. That's just frustrating for us as a viewer to have him get the ta- the case taken away from him. Like that's not fun for us. But also the other thing I'll say is he keeps doing this plot armor stuff with Cuervo Jones where like he'll just be like, I'm not shooting Steve Buscemi. I'm not shooting uh, Cuervo Jones when they're literally laying down in my feet, ready to die. Even though I know as a, like an elite agent that killing both these people would just send their organizations into chaos. Like they wouldn't know who to follow. Like I, the end of the second act being the third act, I agree is the weakest part of this movie. I agree with you. They didn't quite know how to go from him falling down into the, the sewer to the remarkable like final seven, eight minutes. But I will say that I do think it works as a subversion of, of him again, not being back in the groove because the Steve Buscemi is kind of the Harry Dean Stanton uh, character. He is like, yeah, you were, you did betray me, but now that you've said you're on my side, I believe you. And nope. He's like relying on what he knew in the past because he's not engaging with the situation as much as he did in Escape from New York. So I I think that moment works, even if I agree with you 100 percent that then the next 20 minutes that follows, they are scrambling to figure out how to get to the ending. Is I do really love uh, before we get to the final, final ending. I do really, really love the like shootout at Happy Land. Oh, or is it with, Happy the hang- World? with the hang gliders? Yeah, great practical effects, too. So the hang gliders are weird because they start off looking like shit, Mm -hmm. and then they get better as the compositing gets better, and then there's this, like, Happy Land thing that they're going for, this Disneyland parody. Mm Mm-hmm. And the whole last shootout takes out there. I like the, the final act at this Happy Land or Happy World or whatever, um, though I wish it was, like, just, like, having the, the Universal Studios jaws shark and all that i wish it was like more aggressive with that stuff like i wish it was teasing disney like it feels it it feels incredibly toothless um yeah and all they do is they fly over the matterhorn like what else happens there to make it matter that it's disneyland well you also have snake going like is that what i think it is you know like wink wink nudge nudge like we can't name it because we'll get sued but hey you know what this is and it feels like something that would be in a comic book, but they would actually spend like 10 panels making fun of Disneyland. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I agree. All, all the I, I will. We never really circled back to this, but I agree that all of your the L.A. parodies are at, at best interesting plot points at worst completely toothless and a waste of time. There's right. one interesting L.A. parody before I get to the, the little shootout at Happy Land. And that is Bruce Campbell as the Surgeon General of Beverly Hills, where he has this cult of um, plastic surgery freaks following him around. Yeah. That stuff, that scene is great. That is basically a microcosm of what I wish the movie was. Like this like poison view of L.A. where they're like, they're like every aspect of L.A. gets turned on its head or just magnified 200 percent. I would love that the whole movie was like that. The reason that I watch Escape from New York is because of Bruce Campbell. I saw Army Darkness at 15, wanted to see everything that Bruce Campbell was in and was like, well, he's in Escape from L.A., but I need to watch Escape from New York first. So the reason that I ever watched these two movies when I did. Is 100% because of the three minutes that Bruce Campbell's in this movie. <laughs> I was taken aback at how quickly he exits the film. When I saw him, you know, single card so billing quick. in the credits, I was like, whoa, Bruce Campbell's in this. And then, oh, yeah. like, okay. Bye. Yeah. Like, there's so many better reasons to watch Escape from New York than Bruce Campbell was in three minutes of the sequel. But anyways. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. That was Go the ahead. only reason I watched Bubba Hotop. So, it's, anyways. Uh, yeah, so that last act, there's a really fun shootout at Happy Land where – John Carpenter occasionally in this movie is like showing off his old skills and he does it in in the Baycock rules scene and also in the scene where a Carradine is uh, goes up to Snake and challenges him and then Snake pisses him off and then he starts to follow Snake and he's about to throw a knife at Snake and Snake just fucking blows him away very similar to the Indiana Jones sequence coming full circle where he shoots the knife man with uh, a gun I think it was a swordman I like the way knifeman sounds better yeah way better. agreed but isn't a sword just a long knife think about that when you're laying in bed tonight folks i want news reports to use the word knifeman in all stabbing reports <laughs> just like yeah the, the knifeman was a male age 33 yeah i wish they would stop saying stabber or guy yeah that moment when snake shoots that guy like there's some great moments where john carpenter kind of like engages his action um instincts the last uh, sequence leading up to the true final ending of the movie that we're gonna get to right after this and there's some really fun shootouts going on it's hershey's gang the uh shanghai something shanghai killers or something them against cuervo jones's gang it's sort of like a three-way battle also because like steve buscemi is in the mix too and whatever that's that's a great shootout and then we get to the the true ending when snake actually escapes from la uh, Tom, do you want to do want to kind of run through like what you think of what happens here? So the helicopter crashes with Snake and Utopia in it, and not after some sneaky insert shots where Utopia is seen grabbing what may or may not be a decoy of the uh, the disc for the satellite system. That I kind of chuckled because it was like this is a year after Goldeneye, and electromagnetic pulse satellite is the MacGuffin in this movie as well. But <laughs> the helicopter crashes, Utopia gets out, uh, Snake walks out of the flaming wreckage there's a standoff the president gets the button back to begin uh wiping out all the countries that are about to invade america and when he turns it on it's steve buscemi's tour guide it's like oh snake you flipped the script on me give me the real thing and you find out that 
Snake isn't actually there. He used one of the gadgets he got at the beginning of the movie to project a hologram of himself. And he basically tells the president, you're a dick. I hate you. I hate what you are doing, what you represent. And he pushes the button and the world, every piece of electronic turns off the world, stops the world. Exactly. Yeah. All That's the end of this movie is he turns off the world. Yep. And he turned off the world. He just basically like walks away smoking a cigarette and like kind of you know has a little chuckle to himself being like as he says the movie's closing lines, welcome to the human race. You know, like now we're just alone with ourselves and he takes a kind of like sadistic pleasure in that. So this is one of my top ten favorite endings of all time. Really? I hate the ending line, let's 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 forget that exists. I really don't like it. <laughs> uh, I don't want to talk about the ending line. But anyone who listens to this podcast or knows me at all, if you hear me say that, you probably think correctly that he is a sucker for anything that not just circumvents what you expect from the movie, but circumvents or abruptly dismisses or overturns cliches from movies at that time in general. Oh, yeah. The reason that I like Valeria's character getting shot is not because I don't want to see her in the movie. She's great. It's that the clear love interest never gets killed 10 minutes after meeting her. And the reason that I love this ending is that movie characters are never allowed to actually do stuff like destroy the world. And they I feel like they actually are more now. Movies are more concerned with narratives, so they're less willing to make big changes. But even more so back then, where at least big changes indicate a cliffhanger, which makes you want to go see the next movie. Here, it's like, in the same way I loved when, uh, you know, Indiana Jones just shot the guy with the knives, <laughs> shot the knifesman. And I love when, uh, you know, <laughs> Long Ash just all of a sudden has a chainsaw. Because who gives a shit? I have a chainsaw now. I loved this. And I still love it. And it still works phenomenally and i just i wish more movies were able to say fuck it with their tropes which is that things need to be resolved in a clear way and escape from new york has a very small scale version of this i can't imagine a bigger scale version of this well i agree with you in that like yeah that's present in all carpenter's work you know the fact that the thing ends with an unclear and uncertain victory that may blow up in their faces and we're just left to assume oh like what's going to happen to them and uh the fact that they live ends with just the entire conspiracy being unmasked but you don't know where it's going to go from there it's just you know uh everyone's eyes are open what are they going to do now who knows the shock value of everyone finding out is just what you're left on see everything that i kind of had prepped to talk about the ending aaron you kind of elucidated on with your speech about how the the through line of the gap between the sequels kind of explains snake's actions and i have been kind of just sitting here dwelling on that um because I do, agree, and now I'm starting to agree with it in certain extents. It's just, I don't know. When I first saw I it, did it, I was blown away by how, like, the big switch prank at the end of one was like a fuck you to the man. It was like, you don't care about the little people, so I'm going to take away something, admittedly, that could have been big for the whole world, but mainly it's just there to, like, embarrass the establishment. In this one, the decision is a fuck you to the establishment, but it's also a giant like you know middle finger to the very same little people and it's where i was just initially like okay i get it snakes just at the end of his rope and he's pissed and he's as you said he's so broken and has lost so much faith that he doesn't care because he 
like he's just been thrown around by everybody so much that he doesn't care about a one-stop solution to all of his headaches. But I don't know. There was just a degree of it where I was like, even though he is an anti-hero, I think the line was that he wouldn't view most life as disposable, which is shown like when Valeria, like he starts coming around to her and you can see he kind of actually is like a little upset when she dies. And in this one, it's just like he's condemned all of the innocent people of the world to the same fate as the corrupt and the powerful that he's initially punishing. And I was like, ah, kind of a dick move. So what I'll say to that in defense of the, the ending... Yeah. When you kind of put Snake into perspective as a wider character. Let's think about what his history is. In the last movie they established, he's a war hero. Yes. Who uh, was reduced to bank robbing, to whatever, fund whatever he needed to do. But he was just like in a war. He's been out of the world since the 80s. Yeah. Uh, or I guess the 90s and the actual chronology but you know 20 plus years he's been out of the world when they find him he's doing uh gun fighting in new old vegas in thailand and that like that implies a few things one the world went from this uh lightly theocratic uh dictatorship to a full-on theocratic dictatorship that has banned smoking banned drinking like things have gotten a lot worse and he is yeah, off. he definitely smokes in new york quite a bit everybody smokes lee van cleef i think smokes the president might yeah. smoke it doesn't fucking matter yeah, yeah um so he's chasing thrills like he's basically like wanting to die at the beginning of la if you think about it like who else would do gunslinging for hire in new vegas or something in new las vegas in thailand like who else would do that except for somebody that wants to die so like he's somebody who's just feels so out in the world it has so for 20 years so that's background also i think that this is carpenter's progressive politics popping in where he's saying this system is unfixable this right. is a world that's unfixable so it's sort of like a snow piercer thing where he's saying we can't fix the system so we're going to crash the system there's no way for me to do anything else so in a way this is snake as an anti-hero walking into perfect anti-hero space because he's 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 almost becoming a um Ozymandias from Watchmen. He's he's becoming a character where you're like, I don't know how to judge that activity. Once you get full context of the world, I don't know how to judge that activity because maybe shutting down the world and like letting countries reorganize and take down America as a global power and letting the world sort of like reform into nation states or whatever the fuck happens after this Maybe that's better than having America as this grand empire with doomsday weapons and nukes and more bombs than we know what to do with. Like, maybe crashing the system is the heroic move. I, I'm sitting here uh, just blown away that you two, not like I, I did enjoy this movie, but now I'm actually coming around completely to this being far greater than I even gave it credit for. And this is the second you drop Snowpiercer, I'm like, oh, God, he's right. Oh, like, <laughs> but, here, but here's the other thing I think is very important. I, I'm putting myself in your position, Tom, because I think this movie's prescience is confusing because watching this, it is a few degrees off from where we're, we're at as a civiliz 
civilization. Mm-hmm. But I watched this when Clinton was president. Okay. This did not, <laughs> this felt like a far off dystopia. The implications of Snake destroying electricity. This movie goes out of its way to not mention people of lesser means. They're not really uh, discussed as like a, a group in L.A., and they're definitely not portrayed or discussed outside of the movie space outside of L.A. We don't have an idea of what that looks like. So I think that you are adding implication somewhat correctly. Like, hey, if we shut off the power, who would suffer more? The people that like now can't feed themselves, um, the people of lesser means, all that kind of stuff. But I think this movie both comes from a time and purposely is not trying to engage on that level. So... Right. There's definitely dickheads nowadays that will watch this movie and say, look at this. See, society needs to go back to square one. Maybe makes it difficult to to take this movie on its own terms. But I will say, as someone who watched it at the time is watching it now, it those implications of like what this would do to the lesser of people. It's just not there in the movie. It really is just a fuck you to all the people with power. And I think I think that's the most important thing to take away from it. Like, yes, in the real world, the people with power would probably still have guns, which would work and all these other things. But Snake is doing it as a fuck you to all the people who are using satellites to communicate with their subjects in their fascist society and have all these nuclear weapons and electronic devices, which especially is is important because it's 2013. It's not 1996. So they have all these other ways of controlling the world that we don't know at the time. So I think taking the fantastical element of him shutting off the power as a fuck you to the people in power, especially is, is extremely important to not getting bogged down with the logistics of this ending. I'm completely seeing that now. And I I get where you guys are coming from. Yeah. It does make the ending a lot more, a lot more enjoyable as like a badass, you know, fuck the system, you know, moment. I I get that. I'm I'm seeing that now. Uh, Obviously if snake set off an EMP in modern society, I'd be like, Hey, we can we can fix things. Like I, I know Trump sucks, but like we can fix things. But like yeah. in the society that we're presented as, I'm like, there's no fixing any of this. Like burn it all down. The people that are in power, uh, the only people left are the people that agree with them. The only, like everyone else is already subjected to LA or a version of that, right? Because. Because they they took anyone that just thinks differently than them and put them on islands. So right. shutting off the power to what remains is all the people that are are actively supporting a theocratic fascistic regime. It's implied that there's armies about to invade America on two separate coasts. Do you think that Snake setting the entire world back to square one was a better alternative than Snake withholding the government's best weapon against an invading force. But that invading force is represented by Cuervo Jones, who's also a huge power-hungry asshole. Remember, he works for them. He's trying to make that invading force come true. It all kind of works with me in that, sure, there is another, there's, there's another component, there's another country, there's another world power. And all those people who have power deserve to have it taken from them. Power symbolically and like and and more literally in the idea of both having power, but also like controlling power to turn on your shit is clearly portrayed in this movie as something that is owned by the rich assholes who run the country. To jump back to Tom's point in a 
pragmatic, very boring sense. Uh, <laughs> global blackout wipes out everybody. So yeah. that invading force is not going to succeed in its goal because an invading army requires communication and requires power to proceed. They might just be like a marauding invasion force or maybe they'll go home. Like, Or their ships will just stop or whatever else. Like, it's that kind of movie where you would watch like... <laughs> boats sailing and then the lights would go off in the boats and somehow they'd stop sailing. Like, it is that kind of movie. But it is something that you think about because it is the sort of ending that you don't see very often. Yeah. I, I think I agree with Aaron. The ending is the best part of the movie and it's the part of the movie that I will be thinking about for years and years and years. I think the ending is, is in a weird sense, elevates the movie a star, maybe more. It gives me a, a sort of thought process that some that uh, other movies of this ilk do not give me. Absolutely. I think we should go to final thoughts. I, I feel like anyone listening to this podcast knows where I stand on this movie. I'm extremely positive. I really, really love it. So I'm just going to say some moments that we didn't get a chance to, to talk about that I loved. And then we can go to you guys. So... I really, really like the beginning of this movie where Snake is kind of gets his uniform on. He gets to be kind of shown as a badass, all that kind of stuff. Love that. Oh, complete uh, add on to that scene. Snake's armor in this movie is the exact attire of uh, current WWE wrestler Seth Rollins. He wears a sleeveless like skinny leather top and leather pants with a belt buckle. That's like the exact thing he wears in this movie. When I saw that, <laughs> when I saw that, I was like, this is awesome. Like I totally know where he got that outfit from. That's awesome. And then snake That's doesn't awesome. get to fight. He just gets to play basketball. <laughs> yep. So, uh, that was one of my other notes we didn't even get into, which is, um, no, I preemptively wrote this note, not knowing where you guys fell on this. I still don't, but my note is this. Fuck all of you. I love the basketball scene. Uh, we can move on from that. I love that uh, this actually this happens in uh, Escape from New York to a lesser level as well. But I love that Snake doesn't recognize the president when he's in his face and doesn't know who he is and needs to be told who he is. That's a great uh, character detail. I kind of forgot that's mentioned in uh, Escape from New York, too, where he hears the name and doesn't recognize it as the president. But I, it's even better to be like, yeah, I don't know who this guy is. Oh, he's the president. Oh, I don't care about that. Perfect. <laughs> I love the Cleveland running gag. I think earthquake scenes are a really good example of practical special effects. They're too brief, but it really works well in, like, showing the L.A. Expressway or whatever collapsing. Uh, we mentioned the Bangkok rule scene. I, I fucking absolutely love that. Um, I also really, really like the flu trick. I love that that was a subversion of the first movie and also the idea that he was still feeling the effects of it because it was a virus. It was just not a virus that was going to kill him at the end, which is which is just a great way to to emphasize that they were not under the same time limit as the first movie, but they still wanted all that shit back as quick as possible, but they didn't want to kill their only hope because this time everyone on that fucking island has guns, which they didn't have the first time. So oh, they're yeah. like, yeah, it might take you a little longer, but we're still going to motivate you in this really familiar way. So uh, again, I, I, I love the movie, but those are some moments we didn't get a chance to talk about. 
So, Tom, do you want to do you want to share some final moments or uh, final thoughts on the film? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll just also go to bat for the motorcycle chase scene. I thought that was a lot of fun, really well choreographed, um, really good stunt work in that. Probably that would be my highlight, like my action highlight of the movie, just because I I just like I said, everything I said, I really enjoyed it top to bottom. Um, my final thoughts. So digesting this back to back with the first one, obviously colored a lot of how uh, I viewed it. I came into this enjoying it as like a fun, really good action movie with a character that I already knew I enjoyed. I had some uh, reservations about what they did in the third act, but having talked about it a little bit more and gotten some more perspective on it and insight, I think I appreciate it a little bit more. While still thinking the original is a superior film, um, I think Escape from L.A. is a very worthy sequel and kind of ahead of its time in a lot of movie making and political ways that make it an incredibly interesting film and i would totally recommend it to anybody yeah thank you tom um i think it's a sloppy mess namely like there's sequences that are just a wholesale failure we didn't even get into surf and snake Pluskin, which is like it's easy to make fun of bad cgi but like this is just like a bad idea from the start to have snake surf because like surfing is like a recreational sport it's not like a form of traversal it's just like a weird it's a weird well, thing. not with that attitude yeah <laughs> um it's not like skateboarding where it's like people skateboard places also but anyways so the movie has sloppy loose ends like that yet uh there's a lot of really great ideas in the movie and i keep returning to it because it is classic carpenter where he just can't help but be interesting he doesn't really know how to be boring few of his very few of his movies he manages to get that and that's like probably just him letting the producers take over or whatever like the ward yeah he he, it feels like he lost interest later on like he's like whatever i want to keep making movies but i don't care about this anymore but i think this and ghosts of mars i would rate as um interesting failures in movies that i will continue to watch because they're so fun to chew on like i weirdly enough will watch escape from l.a more often than lots of competent 90s actioners like i'll watch this way more often than the rock and i like the rock but it's from the same year it's a way more competent movie it was michael bay before he put his head up his own ass and (laughs) yet i would rather watch this because i'm just like chewing on it it's just like it's such a fun experience the the ending is so amazing and and partially it's because it has like a weird classicism to it where it feels like a james bond movie where they're like they they're like oh i bet you forgot he got a hollow device (laughs) and then he uses it for one of the best parts of the movie like that's a fun that's a fun little thing so yeah ultimately i'm um I'm more on Tom's side of the the equation, but uh, I can see what. Well, that's Aaron interesting because Tom came to my side. I feel like so. Ooh, so I'm ultimately uh, against both of you, and I think that both of you should be sent to an island prison where I can, you know, keep you away from decent folk. I love the movie. Good movie. Good movie is good. I think we all agreed. Better than Escape from New York, which will well, cover still great. No. Uh, nice try. Nice try. So, so I think we I think we gave the movie a pretty fair shake because I really did not want to come in and uh, like some podcasts and just be like, well, the CGI is bad. And like, well, this is silly. Well, the first movie is so serious. Why is this silly? Like, I, I want to engage with 
why this like parts of this do not work for me and parts of it do so i think we handled our our goal for today pretty well let's uh let's bring this on home so tom thank you so much for coming i don't know where we're gonna hear so tom thank you so much for coming because we just talked about a bunch of other stuff for a long period of time which is telling about how great tom is to have in this podcast so we can't wait to have you back tom why don't you let us know what you've been working on i know you mentioned at the beginning but why don't you give us some websites to let us know where to check it out. All right. Well, I just want to thank you guys up front again for having me, uh, for giving into my incessant nonstop demands. Um, no, this is really great. Uh, I'm currently... I mean, I'm out of brown M&M's, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I produce content through my production company, Sycamore Street Studios. You can find us at sycamorestreetstudios.com. All those words typed out in full. And on Twitter and YouTube, respectively, we've got a horror comedy coming out this fall called Devil Woman. I'm currently in the process of finally writing the newest episode of a mise on game where i'm going to be talking about the cinematics in zelda breath of the wild anyway looking forward to seeing those come out uh because you know producing stuff keeps the blood flowing makes me feel alive and that's what i'm all about tom's work is super fun you should definitely check them out uh i've already talked up mise on game i want to talk it up again uh the youtube series and and a lot of his the work on youtube that i've seen of his is is really impressive and we're We'd love to have Tom on. Absolutely. And uh, so shockingly, Peter, another John Carpenter episode has run extremely long. Yeah, <laughs> it's almost Christ. It's almost like we really, really like him. Yeah, this uh, is a burden to bring upon our guests because we are going consistently 30 minutes longer than usual. 30 minutes longer than our longest uh, versions of that. So, Peter, why don't you tell us how we're wrapping up this uh uh, next week, we'll announce our August theme, but next week's movie will be uh, Ghosts of Mars <laughs> uh, with Marcus Jones. Marcus Jones is of Crushed Celluloid and Jean-Paul Van Damme fame, and he's been on the show before. Uh, Marcus was on Silent Night, Deadly Night, and he was a fantastic guest as well. Aaron and I have both been on his podcast, uh, Jean-Paul Van Damme. If you can't get enough of us. Um, and his podcast is, is fantastic. And I will actually be on his podcast, uh, Jean-Paul Van Damme very soon to cover the Van Damme movie in hell. So sort of, uh, plugging next week's guest and plugging myself because I am a raging narcissist. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much, Tom, for coming you can't on. Take, is... you, you cannot take my core identity away from myself on this podcast. <laughs> That's like, That's his was... gimmick. Get your own. Okay, fine. I'm a sensitive person who cares about everyone's feelings all the time and a wonderful co-host. Aw, so thanks, Aaron. I'm taking Peter's. I mean, I always saw you as a big teddy bear, Aaron. I don't know. It works. Well, that's just because I eat too much. I mean, Pete, <laughs> Peter's ruthless enough to become Pope at such a young age. <laughs> Aaron has been taking his uh, hair growth hormones recently, and uh, oh. I really appreciate it if you would not make fun of him for his uh, two inches of arm hair. When you talk to a 34-year-old dad, definitely mention weight, definitely mention their hairline. All <laughs> positive things to talk about to that person that's just like barely trying to keep his together his his look <laughs> uh aaron you're a wonderful co-host and a sexy man finally someone thank you very much guys for talking about escape from la good night now we gotta escape from this podcast
folks. Thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. If you want to get in touch with us, please reach out to us at either our website, WLTWpodcast.com, or our Facebook group, facebook.com backslash we love to watch and uh yeah reach out to us give us some feedback give us some support uh, suggest movies for the show all that we are also available on soundcloud TuneIn, stitcher and itunes thanks for listening we love to watch snake plissken puts up a brick no put up a brick all right, uh, Snake do, do better. Right, do, give me, give me, give me a, give me another one. What's up? A br- maybe, maybe the problem is I'm doing it bad, and so you're copying me. <laughs> <laughs> Put. We love to watch Snake Pliskin puts up a brick. Want to be put up a brick? All right. I mean, he he didn't miss any shots though. Okay, what's a, what's another razzle dazzle? Do that one. There we go. Snake we Pliskin. We razzle dazzle. <laughs> Can I do this? We'll have to watch Snake Plissken Razzle Dazzle!